and turn into your Bibles to the book of Joel, the mighty book of Joel. We'll be in chapter 2 this morning, starting in verse 18, Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 18. If you need a pew Bible, feel free to use one in front of you. You'll find today's reading on page 905, reading Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 18, reading through verse 27, 18 through 27. Follow along as I read. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rearguard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things." Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain, as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else, and my people shall never again be put to shame. Father, Lord, thank you for your mercy that is new each and every morning. Father, thank you for this time that we can just gather. Lord, I pray that you would speak to each one individually, no matter where they are in life, no matter what they're facing, good or bad. Open our hearts, open our eyes to you. In your name I pray, amen. I invite you to keep your Bibles open there in the Old Testament book of Joel as we continue in our series here. And uh, in the book of Joel, which we're simply calling Turn to the Lord, that's kind of the theme of the whole book of, of Joel, it's turning to the Lord. And I'm so thankful for the grace of God, which motivates and propels and and launches us toward the grace of God. It's because of His grace that we even turn to Him. And and because of the common grace of God over our whole world, it's amazing that not everything that's lost, not everything that is destroyed in this fallen, sinful world in which we live is lost or destroyed forever. Some things, believe it or not, can be restored. We, we know this. For example, money can be restored. We've seen throughout the history of uh, just the stock market uh, that money that is lost in a bear market can oftentimes be regained in a bull market. We have seen uh, that property can be restored, such as old cars or broken down houses. And, and we see this reality on TV shows all the time with those car restoration shows and in home improvement shows, uh, and I'm sure you've watched them, you've seen them before. And with God's grace, 
relationships can even be restored. And some of you know the blessing of a restored relationship. But one thing that can never be restored is time. Time flies and it does not return. The years pass and we never get them back. And yet, God promises the impossible. When He says here in Joel chapter 2 and in verse 25, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. Now as we have seen in the course of this series here in the book of Joel that God's people have have suffered this devastating disaster when a, a locust plague strikes their land. But it's not just any locust plague. We learn that, that God is actually dealing with His people under the covenant that He made with them at Mount Sinai after He rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. And so the locust plague isn't random. It is rather relational. God is dealing with his people, the children of Israel, because of their sins. And his goal now through this natural disaster, this divine disaster, we might even say, this locust plague, his goal is to drive them back, to woo them, if you will, back into his loving arms. According to Joel, the locust plague was was unprecedented. The consequences were far-reaching. Crops were destroyed. The fields were wrecked. Life's necessities were stripped away. Worship was disrupted. And and gladness in the people's heart was now dried up. And just when you think it can't get any worse, Joel says that the locust plague is now a a prelude to God's all-consuming judgment in chapter 1, verse 15, when he says, Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. His judgment is coming. So what does Joel do? We saw in chapter 2 that Joel sounds the alarm because the day the Lord is near, and and he says no one can endure it. In fact, we learn here in chapter 2 that that their only hope is the Lord's mercy and the Lord's grace. And so Joel calls the people to turn to the Lord in in repentance of their sin and dependence on Him. And the question we are left with, the question that hangs over this that we ended in our last sermon here in this series was, will God answer their cries? Will will God relent and leave a blessing as Joel humbly asks in verse 14? That's the question we're left with. And Joel answers now with this resounding yes in the remainder of chapter 2. In fact, God declares this answer. He clarifies it even more for us. When he says in verse 25, which we already read, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. And so what is God doing here? Well, what we're going to see through the prophet Joel is that God's promise to restore the locust years is an outpouring of his mercy and grace beyond what we can imagine. Verse 25 is one of the most Incredible statements in the book of Joel and perhaps even the whole Bible where God says, I will restore to you the locust years. This is how much God loves us. He wants to restore what has been restored as a result of our sin. In fact, the ESV study Bible adds this 
uh, commentary, they add this remark and say, being human often means bearing loss, never to be regained. And yet the Lord, the, the bringer of calamity, is also the Lord of mercy and an abundant grace who is able to recompense. That's the idea behind God's restoration, God restoring. In fact, this word restore here, it means to, to repay, to pay back or to make up for. And it, it has legal consequences or legal connotations, meaning compensation or recompense. And so what's happening here is God in acknowledging all the damage that's done to the land and even to his own people, he now promises them. He promises to provide ample compensation for all that they have suffered. And this is an outpouring beyond what they can imagine. It's an outpouring of his grace and his mercy to them beyond what they themselves might imagine. So it is clear now in the book of Joel that the tide has turned. In fact, from this point forward, it is nothing but blessing for the people who who turn to the Lord in repentance of sin and dependence on him. God responds to the people turning to him. He responds to the priests praying in verse 17, spare your people, O Lord. In other words, right before where Dane started reading in verse 18, we find the priests praying and they are begging God, they're beseeching him based on his mercy that they would spare them. And now God is answering that. God hears their cry for mercy. He sees their heart of repentance. And in response, here in verse 18, he says, then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. This is beautiful. This is the turning point here. This verse marks the turning point in the book of Joel. It it marks the turning point even in the life of God's people. For the Lord is now moving, and he was moved by jealousy for his land. He was moved by his own pity or compassion for his people. In fact, the turning point is summed up in those two phrases where it says the Lord became jealous and the Lord had pity. In both of these phrases express aspects of God's steadfast, loyal love for his people. God's jealousy. That's a term or a phrase we're not often familiar with, and, and yet it is covenant language. And what I mean by that is the first time we see it is in Exodus chapter 20, when God makes a covenant with the children of Israel. And and in doing so, in making this covenant, he gives them what we are very familiar with, known as the Ten Commandments. And those Ten Commandments were a sign of his covenant love that he's making with them. And God says in Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. And the basis of that commandment is when God says in verse 5 of Exodus 20, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In other words, God is jealous for his people's exclusive worship of him. In other words, we might think of it this way. If if these people, if God's people, if they belong to God, then they can belong to no other. And we understand that even today, just in our own marriage relationships. It's not the same, obviously, as human beings. We have dysfunction, we have sin, We have selfishness that creeps into our marriage relationships, but we understand when we make a covenant relationship with our spouse, when we pledge our vows to our spouse, we 
in a sense, I, I know this is true for me with my wife Darla, I am jealous of her love. In other words, her love is exclusive for me in this relationship. It's unique. And in the same way, this is the idea that God is jealous for His people's worship of Him. And as the Ten Commandments reveal, God takes this covenant relationship that He has made for His people, He takes it very serious. Sometimes God's jealousy, it, it moves Him to judge His people for flirting with and even worshiping other gods. In, in fact, we just in a marriage, when a, when a spouse uh, flirts with another person outside of that relationship and even has sex with that person, we, might, we call that adultery. And in a sense, God's people had spiritual adultery when they would worship other gods instead of exclusive worship of the one true God. And so God's jealousy... He moves him to judge his people at times for, for flirting with and worshiping other gods. But when they repent, when God's people would repent, God's jealousy also moves him to take pity upon his people, to have compassion on his people, to actually deliver them, and to draw them back into his arms and protection. And we see this repeatedly all through the Old Testament, where God's people would worship him exclusively. They would obey his commands. We see in the Ten Commandments, when God made that covenant with his people, he told them, listen, if you will obey me, if you will worship me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, then there are consequences and there are curses. And through the rest of the history of the children of Israel through the Old Testament, we see this repeated pattern where they would worship the Lord and then they would disobey. They would go off and worship and flirt with other gods. And God would then move out of his jealousy for his own name to bring consequences and curses on them. He would even use other people's pagan nations to initiate those consequences and those curses. And to the point where he brings them to repentance and they would repent and come back and return to him. And God would then restore those blessings back in that relationship. We see this all the time and now we come to Joel. We see the same thing happening here. That's what happens here. God's jealousy for his people's exclusive worship, it now moves him to deliver them in light of their repentance of sin and dependence on him. And so think of this. God's jealousy, it is as much a part of God's love as his compassion. In fact, God shows his love in both jealousy and his compassion both of these things lead God to take action on behalf of his land, the promised land that he gave to the children of Israel and his own people. The people had now turned to the Lord with all their heart, with a broken heart, and now the Lord is turning to relent his wrath and to restore his people, and it was now time for rejoicing for the people of God. Now, we need to remember also that Joel is a prophetic book. And this book centers around the theme of the day of the Lord. We see this in the book of Joel, these three chapters repeatedly. It's in all three chapters, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And so while Joel is speaking of a time 
following this locust plague that devastated the land of Judah and God's restoration for his people, there is also this aspect of a future restoration of Israel during the millennial kingdom that will also be a time of great rejoicing by God's people. This historical restoration that we see here in the book of Joel then is a foreshadow. It gives us a glimpse, a taste of the ultimate restoration that's still to come for God's people, the children of Israel. And so notice this time of refreshing here what God does for his people because of their repentance of sin and dependence on him that is motivated out of God's own jealousy. He's moved by it as well as his compassion for his people. We see, number one, that the Lord renews the people's reputation or he rebuilds the people's reputation. God says at the end of verse 19, look at it with me in your Bibles. He says, I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Now remember, this is exactly what the priest had prayed in verse 17. Look at it in verse 17. They say, this is their prayer to God, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. And now what is God doing? He's actually answering that prayer when he says, I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Now, there's actually a double thrust or a double emphasis to God's promise here in that the people will no longer have to put up with being mocked and God's name will no longer be brought into disgrace. In other words, if the nations were mocking the people of Israel with, where is your God? He's nowhere to be found. Where is your God? Then it was time for God to act for the sake of his own name as well as for the sake of his own people. You see, the people now needed some evidence. They needed some assurance that God did not forsake them, that God had not abandoned them, and that he was indeed still their God, and he, they were still his people. And so in an act of loving kindness, what does God do for them? He renews or he rebuilds the people's reputation among the nations surrounding them. And in so doing, God is doing something else. He is also glorifying his own name among the nations. In fact, this is why God does what he does throughout all the Old Testament and even the New Testament. This is why God does what he does all through the course of history, is to glorify his name among the people. God is always acting for this purpose. From Genesis to Revelation, but even before the creation of the world to all eternity. It is all for the sake of his name. Everything God does is for the sake of his name. And that we might find joy and take joy in glorifying his name as well. And so the first thing that God does for the people in restoring them is he renews or rebuilds the people's reputation, but he does so for the sake of his own name. And then number two, the Lord removes enemy invaders. Look what God says in verse 20. He says, I will remove the northerner far from you. Now, the question becomes, well, who's the northerner? And to be quite honest with you, there is debate amongst Bible scholars as to who the northerner exactly is. Some commentators say the northerner is a a human invader, like 
Assyria, or perhaps even Babylon, which we know historically Assyria and Babylon did invade Israel and Judah. Other commentators say the northerner is the locust invasion, and this is now another metaphor to describe them. I would say that the immediate context seems to suggest the reference is to locusts, especially when God identifies the army as the locusts in verse 25. But there might even be a double meaning with this, that it could possibly be a reference to the locusts as well as to the northern, an army like Assyria that is still yet to come. But why does Joel call the locust army the northerner, though? Well, because the locust army, as I already alluded to, it does point to the way human armies will eventually invade Israel and Judah. In fact, what Joel's doing here, he's using the same language as the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. The Lord would eventually raise up the Assyrian kingdoms, the Babylonian kingdoms to the north to invade Israel and Judah because of their repeated sin. But now God promises to remove the northern far from his people, at least for the time being. Why? Because they have repented. They're now depending on him. And so God relents his wrath, his judgment, says, I'll remove this coming army that we learned about in the beginning of chapter 2, as well as I will restore to you the locust years, a, a picture we know was a historical aspect of this locust plague that did come. And notice where God will remove these enemy invaders too. It's interesting. I love how Joel says this in verse 20. In fact, God's the one speaking through Joel. He says, and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. And so what we see here, this is a total reversal of what took place with the locust plague. God will remove these enemy invaders. The same God who gave the locust orders to invade Judah and cause all this devastation in the land is now issuing orders for their own destruction so that one half drowns in the Dead Sea and the other drowns in the Mediterranean Sea. And so here's the point of all this. God is large and in charge of every stage of the locust existence and even these formidable foes, these armies of Assyria and Babylon that would come later. He is sovereign over any evil that is launched on his people even today. That is the point. God is sovereign and in control. So God's jealousy and compassion move him to renew the people's reputation for the sake of his own name. It also moves him to remove the enemy invaders and here's another way his jealousy and compassion move him to act. Number three, the Lord reverses the covenant curses. We saw these curses earlier on in chapter one and chapter two because of the locust plague and their disobedience. And now we see a reversal of these curses. And it's indicated when God says in verse 19, look at it, behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And then Joel expands on this reversal in verses 21 and 24, where he says, Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice. Why? For the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beast of the field. 
For the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. Why? For he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain, as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. What an incredible display here of God's goodness and God's greatness on behalf of his people. It is beyond what they can imagine. We see God's goodness and his greatness demonstrated First of all, his goodness is demonstrated in the abundance of grain, wine, and oil for his people. He might remember in chapter 1 that the grain, wine, and oil were all products of the land. Those three products constituted the people's diet. And you might remember, because of the locust plague, though, those basic necessities of life had not been available to the people for a very long time. But God now says to them, behold, I'm sending to you grain, wine, and oil. And the present tense of the verb sending actually lets the people know that God's great reversal is already underway now. In other words, they don't have to wait. What was destroyed, what was eaten, what was stripped away was now being supplied and doing so in abundant measure. In fact, that is the whole emphasis here that God has given to us. This is the goodness of God on behalf of his people. In fact, these blessings will be so abundant, according to verse 24, it says, the threshing floor shall be full of grain, the vat shall overflow with wine and oil. In other words, there is no need by the people for skimping. There is plenty. The supply will be full to overflowing, so much so that everyone will have more than enough to meet their needs. And don't miss what else God says about his goodness here in verse 20 or verse 19. He says, you will be what? He says, you'll be satisfied satisfied. In fact, God doesn't just say that one time. He actually says it two times. He repeats it in verse 26. He says, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. That is utterly amazing. The result of God's goodness to his people is that they will be satisfied or content with what he supplies them. Now, just think about that with me for a moment here. Because which is the greater blessing? For God to give you an abundance of stuff? That's often how we interpret blessings. And only how we interpret blessings. When God blesses us with stuff, material things often, more money, more things, stuff... Or is the greater blessing for God to enable you to be content with what he's already given? Listen, there is a reality here. Because we have a gracious God. We have a good God that sometimes God will bless you with more. And other times the blessing from God is simply greater contentment. 
greater satisfaction. Listen, in a culture where contentment is now a very rare commodity, we need to lean in to what Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6.6, but godliness with what? With contentment is great gain. It's simply Paul's way of saying the same thing that Joel is saying here. You will be satisfied or content with what God has supplied to your life. God not only demonstrates his goodness in the lives of his people with the abundance, but he also demonstrates his greatness now in the marvelous things he has done. Now, you need to see the contrast here that Joel is making. According to verse 20, the locust army has done great things in destroying the land. But now, in verse 20, we come to a contrast. The Lord has also done great things, but not to destroy, but to supply. And what's interesting is that the word for great in verse 20 can also be translated as monstrous. And the word for great here in verse 21 can be translated as marvelous. So the people were devastated because the locust army has done monstrous things to the land and on their life. But now, now there's a reason to rejoice because the Lord has done marvelous things on behalf of the people whereas the locust army did monstrous things. And so Joel calls on three victims of the locust plague to be glad and to rejoice in the Lord here. He actually calls on the land in verse 21. He calls on the beast of the field in verse 22. And he calls on the people of the Lord in verse 23. Why? Why does Joel call all three victims to now be glad and to rejoice in the Lord? Because the Lord has done something for them. The Lord has done not monstrous things, but the Lord has done marvelous things for them. And now there is no need to fear, Joel says, when such a God like that is at work on your behalf. Now don't miss this. Yes, this is beautiful. Joel's answer to fear is to actually fix our eyes on the Lord to see the marvelous things, the great things that he has done. That is the answer to fear. Listen, folks, that was true for God's people after a devastating locust plague, and it is still true for God's people in the midst of a COVID pandemic in which we are now coming out of. There's no need to fear. When you fixed your eyes on the Lord in his greatness, in the marvelous things he has done. So what marvelous things has the Lord done for the people in Joel's day? Well, according to verse 22, look at it. It says, the pastures of the wilderness are green, the tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. But the greatest need after a prolonged period of devastation is rain, and lots of it. And this is precisely what the Lord gives in verse 23 when he says, For he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. So no wonder what Joel does here is phenomenal. 
Do you realize Joel is actually calling on God's creation and God's children to fear not and to rejoice in the Lord? To be glad and fear not and rejoice. Why? Because the Lord now has reversed the covenant curses on behalf of the land and the beast and even primarily God's people. All of this points to a future day, the Lord, when the earth will be transformed for all eternity. In fact, in light of that coming day, Psalm 96, 11 through 13 says, Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the field exalt and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. We look forward to this day. In fact, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, speaks of this day in Isaiah 35, verses 1 through 2, where it says, The wilderness and the dry land will be glad. The desert will rejoice and blossom like a wildfire. It will blossom abundantly and will also rejoice with joy in singing. And so even these two passages are calling on God's creation to rejoice in the name of the Lord and His marvelous things that He will do. And then in Isaiah, the chapter ends with it describing the return of God's people in verse 10 where it says, in the ransom of the Lord. In other words, the remnant of the Lord. Those who return to the Lord will return and come to Zion and they will do so, Isaiah says, with singing, crowned with unending joy. Joy and gladness will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee. It is time for rejoicing. It was time for the people of God in Joel's day to rejoice because of what the Lord in His goodness and in His greatness was doing for them, and there is still yet coming an ultimate day for all of God's people to rejoice in the new creation, in the new heavens. Oh, do we look forward to that day. God's jealousy and compassion move him to renew the people's reputation, to remove the enemy invader, to reverse the covenant curses. And here's the last way his jealousy and compassion move him to act. Number four, the Lord actually restores the covenant blessings. He not only reverses the curses, but he restores the blessings. You say, well, in what way does the Lord do this? There's four ways. Notice them. Number one, first of all, the Lord restores his provision. We've already alluded to this a little bit, and we see it full-blown in verse 25 when God says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter. By the way, those four terms for the locust is simply a repeat of the four terms or the description of the locust in chapter 1. And now Joel is repeating that. Now, just imagine with me here for a moment. Can you imagine standing in the land of Judah? Seeing the years of devastation, the years of consequences for your sin. Every morning you wake up, you get out of bed, and the land looks like a wasteland. There's not a green plant in the field. The farmers go out to labor and toil, but still come home with nothing. The kids are hungry. Life seems so hopeless and pointless, and it's 
Why bother? Why bother? That is the state of God's people before God intervenes on their behalf. But God says, if you were in that day, God's people to hear in that situation what God here says, I will restore to you the years the locusts have eaten. Man, what hope. Can you imagine hearing that? And the hope that just swells up within your heart in your God. God says in verse 26, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And what's interesting, in the book of Joel, up to this point, the verb eat has reverted to one thing and one thing only. That is the locust eating. Up to this point, anytime you saw the verb eat, it was always in relation to the locust eating everything in sight, eating the plants, eating the bark on the trees, eating all the vegetation, eating, 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 eating to the point they devastate the land. They devastate your life. But now we see the reference of eating is now applied to God's people. They are now eat, and they will be satisfied. Why? Because the Lord has restored his provision for them. Second of all, the Lord restores his praise. And what's also interesting about this, just as there have been no mention of people eating up to this point, there has also been no mention of people praising, but this too is about to change. You might remember in chapter 1 of Joel, we saw that the people for the in the temple where the praise took place, where the worship took place. That ceased, that stopped, because there was no grain, oil, and wine in which to offer sacrifices to the Lord. There had been no worship. There had been no praising of God's name until now. And God says in verse 26, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And that word wondrously, oh, that is such a beautiful word there that is used. It is an action that is a marvel. God has dealt so wondrously with the people that this action by God himself, the demonstration of his goodness, the demonstration of his greatness, it is beyond their imagination. This is the idea, is beyond normal standards, it's beyond normal expectations. In fact, it is a word, this word wondrously, that often appears in the Psalms to describe the works of God on behalf of his people. And such works, oftentimes in the Psalms, almost always, in fact, they sin, they compel the psalmist to do what? To give praise to God because of his wondrous works. For example, it says in Psalm 98:1, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Why? For he has done marvelous things. And that same praise is now being restored to the people here in Joel. Why? Because the people now realize afresh and anew that the Lord has dealt wondrously, dealt marvelously with them beyond what they could even imagine. In fact, such acts of mercy and grace will cause them once again to break out and praise to the Lord something that had not been heard in the temple services for a long time, but now their hearts are once again full of praise. The Lord restores his provision. The Lord restores his praise. Number three, the Lord restores his protection. Two different times, God says this in verses 26 and 27. 
and my people shall never again be put to shame. When the people were under God's judgment, he made them a reproach among the nations. The locust plague put them in such a vulnerable position where the nations mocked them, laughed at them. Where is your God? But in light of their repentance now, the Lord, He fights on their behalf. He takes away their shamefulness among the nations, and He protects them from the invading armies. He restores their protection. Then lastly, the Lord restores His presence. He restores His presence among the people. You see, the greatest tragedy of sin is that it separates us from joy in the presence of God. Even worse, sin actually turns the Lord against us. Remember, God was the one who was leading the locust invasion against his people. But now look what God says in verse 27. He says, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. Remember, when God was leading the locust invasion and even leading the army invasion, God was no longer in the city of Zion. He was outside the city. He was outside their midst leading the armies against his people. But now, what does God say? I am back in your midst. I am restoring my presence. This is the ultimate gift of God's mercy and grace to us. He restores his presence among the people. In fact, that phrase, I am the Lord your God. And that's covenant language again. It speaks to this very close relationship that God shared with Israel as a result of His mercy and His grace in choosing them as His own special people. You see, for the people of Judah in Joel's day, the mocking by their enemies, it cut to the heart. Where is their God? But now they could reply with complete assurance Our God is in the midst of us, and there is no other God like him. This covenant initiated by God and expressed in the Ten Commandments was now back in place. It's here that God's people, they learn firsthand that there is no other God like the one true God. In fact, the ultimate aim of God in sending the locust plug against his people was to secure their undivided allegiance in worship of him. In fact, evidently, the cause of the locust plague in the first place was the people's old sin, as we already talked about, of spiritual idolatry, of half-hearted worship. Evidently, some of their affections had gone after other things other than God alone. In other words, he was not, he was not their all-consuming love. And so what did God do? He fought against them. For few things are, are more dishonoring to God, more dangerous to us than half-hearted worship of the Lord. But for those who cry out to the Lord for His mercy, for those who, who turn to the Lord in repentance of sin and dependence on Him, notice what God does. He forgives and He restores and He gives us 
full access to his presence once again. And so Joel is doing something, not just for the people in his day. Joel is speaking to us even today. Joel is showing us that God is jealous for his people's worship. God is jealous for your worship. And through his compassionate acts of mercy and grace in your life, he wants all of us here this morning to come to the place where we worship the Lord with full allegiance, with full loyalty, and we rejoice in his name, in his name only. Even today, think about it. God has dealt wondrously with us, has he not? God has dealt marvelously with us through his son, Jesus Christ. In fact, these blessings in the promised land, they simply point us to the blessings that we share in Christ in his kingdom. Think about Jesus' ministry here on earth just for a moment. Consider Jesus removing enemy invaders. No, Jesus didn't, re didn't remove a locust invasion when Jesus walked here on this earth, but Jesus did, did remove demon invaders in people's lives. Did he not? Do you remember the story of the demon-possessed man who lived in a graveyard? Jesus comes upon him and he cast the demons, a legion of demons, into a herd of pigs and drove those pigs into the sea. What's the point? Jesus is the, the Lord of Joel's prophecy here who, who drives our enemies into the seas or consider Jesus actually reversing the curse of sin. When Jesus, in his ministry, he, he walked around and what did he do as, a, as an example of his power and what he will ultimately do? He heals the blind. He heals the lame. He heals the sick. He even calms the storms of the sea. And one day, he will make all of creation right again. Jesus takes away the curse of sin altogether for those who trust in him. But as long as we remain in our sins, we will suffer those eternal consequences. But what did Jesus do for us? Jesus died on the cross to take away our sins. He endured the ultimate curse on the cross so that now we here today, we might have the eternal blessings of living in God's presence as God's people in God's kingdom. So what does that mean? How should we respond to a God who restores like this? Well, notice this. There's only one response, and that is to turn to the Lord. Turn in repentance of sin and dependence on him and then rejoice in the abundant provision of his grace in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this question. What has sin destroyed in your life? We might even ask it this way. What is sin even destroying in your life at this moment? Listen, part of the message of Joel is this. When we disregard the Lord, when we walk away from the Lord, when we turn away from the Lord, when we ignore the Lord, life inevitably goes downhill. And there are consequences. But God can change all of that. 
That's the kind of God we have. God can do marvelous things, wondrously things. That doesn't mean everything will be fully restored this side of Jesus' return. Listen, we cannot undo what is done. Sin is sin, and the effects of sin often continue for many, many years down the road. But the Lord does say, return to me, and I will restore the years the locusts have eaten. Listen, opportunities may have been lost in your life. But God can, he can provide, he can give you new and even better opportunities. Friends may have been driven away because of your sinful actions. But God can actually provide new friends, better friends. Relationships may have been damaged because of some of your decisions. But God can actually bring reconciliation to some of those relationships. God can break the power of sin. God can restore joy in the Lord that would not have seemed possible in our rebellion against him. And so your life is not over today. Listen, through the prophet Joel, he speaks today, and he wants you to hear that if you turn to the Lord, if you will turn to him in repentance of sin, in dependence on him, he promises that all you've been through will be swallowed up in his goodness and grace. So this morning, turn. Turn from your old way of life, your living even now, and turn to the Lord in repentance of sin and ask him to forgive you. Ask him to restore your life, to restore your relationships, to even restore your family and home. And then rejoice in the Lord, knowing that the Lord has dealt wondrously with you in his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Oh, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the prophet Joel and his message to God's people then. And Lord, we thank you for the message of the gospel in Jesus Christ and the restoration that we can find through Jesus for our lives today. And so, Lord, prick our hearts, open our minds to see our need to respond even now. Whether we are already believers, but we have walked away from the Lord and we need to return, or perhaps we have never turned to the Lord and we need to turn to him for salvation. Turn to Jesus Christ for eternal life. And so, Lord, move in our midst. By your Spirit, convict us of sin, knowing that there is forgiveness and restoration in you. And so, Lord, as we give a time of silence to respond, would you, would you move and may we simply respond to you, even now, in the next few minutes here. Heavenly Father, thank you once again for your word, your spirit, and your people. And most of all, your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.